0: THIS IS LAW BITES, A PODCAST WITH MICHAEL GEIST.
1: FRONT AND CENTER IN BEIJING TODAY, A REPORT FROM REUTERS THAT THE U.S. PRESIDENT IS PREPARING TO SIGN AN EXECUTIVE ORDER, MAKING IT IMPOSSIBLE FOR AMERICAN COMPANIES TO USE HUAWEI'S EQUIPMENT. A PURELY POLITICAL MOVE MADE WITHOUT A SHRED OF EVIDENCE, CHINA SAYS. The order would be confirmation of the U.S. stance that Huawei's equipment could easily be used by the Chinese government to spy on Americans. The U.S., Australia and New Zealand have all banned Huawei from their networks. Canada hasn't gone that route, nor has Britain, but that may soon change.
0: What to do about Huawei? The Chinese telecom giant has emerged as one of Canada's most challenging policy issues raising concerns involving competition, communications, security, and trade, not to mention kidnappings and arrests of corporate personnel. The government has repeatedly promised to articulate a policy on the use of Huawei equipment in Canada's next-generation wireless networks, only to regularly delay doing so. Despite the attention and discussion around the company, the issues are often poorly understood by the public and even by some politicians. Here to help sort through the exceptionally complex issues is Dr. Christopher Parsons, a senior research associate at the Citizen Lab, the world-famous cybersecurity lab located at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Christopher specializes in third-party access to telecommunications data as a research specialty, making him ideally suited to sort through fact from fiction when it comes to one of the world's most challenging global tech policy issues. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm really glad you've come on because the issue that we're going to talk about today, Huawei, is, is one where that's generated, I think, an enormous amount of political and business attention, both in Canada and certainly around the world. And yet, despite the attention, it certainly feels a bit like it's a, a fairly poorly understood issue, certainly by the public and perhaps by some of the politicians as well. So I was hoping you could, at, certainly at the beginning, help unpack things a little bit. And so why don't we start with the basics? What is Huawei?
1: Huawei is the world's largest supplier of everything related to telecom. It sells more smartphones than Apple, but is also a leader in cloud storage and cybersecurity. Its sales for 2018 are projected to reach $102 billion dollars. Ren Zhengfei founded the company in 1987. He was a former engineer for China's People's Liberation Army and a member of the Communist Party. Huawei is um, a massive, massive Chinese company. So um, they produce uh, a large range of telecommunications products, everything from core networking equipment, edge networking equipment, handsets, I think they're doing, they're starting to move into some video stuff as well. Really, they, they just, if it's telecommunications related, um, they either have a hand in it in one of their product offerings or, or offerings um, that are then built into other companies' products, or um, at least prior to some of the issues with the Americans, they had intents of moving into that space.
0: Right. It feels like they've come a little bit out of nowhere. I mean, to the extent to which consumers have heard of the company, it's probably from the smartphones because they are, I think, the second largest smartphone maker in the world. But it seems like overnight you had this massive technology company suddenly now dominating business pages and, as as you say, in every part of the communications market.
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, for a lot of people, they're sort of shocking, especially people who haven't been in the telecommunications space. Um, Those who have been looking at routing or, you know, anyone who's been looking to purchase um, carrier-grade telecommunications equipment, I mean, they've known about Huawei for quite some time. Um, Huawei began uh, quite some time ago, and and the way that they got in was selling carrier-grade equipment. And they have a whole bunch of features um, over some of their competitors. One of them is Huawei has enormously benefited from the relatively protected Chinese market, which has meant that they've had a huge market that they can sell into with um, limited competition. And uh, they've also had the advantage of a bunch of very advantageous state loans that have been provided to them at different points in their uh, development, which has facilitated both R&D and production. And then the sale of goods, often at a rate that... uh, Uh, is just a better market price than something from Ericsson, Nokia, or uh, Nortel, (laughs) when Nortel is still around.
0: Right. So better pricing and significant, by the sounds of it, support from their, from their own government, from the Chinese government. What's their presence in Canada? I mean, certainly if you walk into your local phone store, your Rogers or your Bell, you'll find some of their devices. But do we find them within Canada's large networks? Are they part of the broader communications infrastructure in Canada?
1: Yeah, they're they're very much so. Telus is um, based on business reporting, um, uh, predominantly running a Huawei stack. Uh, Bell has included it. Um, There is a little bit as memory serves in Rogers's networks, although they're principally uh, running on Ericsson kit. Uh, And then for the smaller wireless providers that subsequently have been gobbled up, I'm not entirely certain uh, what equipment they've uh, they've invested in.
0: Okay, but we've got at least a couple of the largest. Telecom companies, two of the big three, with significant investments in this equipment. Given that that's the case, they're they're here in Canada. People are using them as their as their devices. I guess the question then becomes: Well, what's the concern? Uh, we've seen invest. We've seen Canadians buy their products, and we're seeing large companies use them to run their networks.
1: Yeah, so the concern runs a whole bunch of different lines. Um, So there's questions that have been percolating for a very long time around national security that have sort of bubbled up to the fore with 5G. Uh, There's concerns about um, the way that Huawei is involved in Canadian uh, academic institutions. And there's also concerns more broadly around uh, the the potential for Huawei to grow and grow and go grow to the extent that it threatens uh, Western telecommunications companies who who provide competitive services such as uh, Nokia and Ericsson. So there's a bunch of different things. And part of the challenge with Huawei and um, addressing it is, I mean, this is to say nothing of course, of the, the current uh, status of their CFO in in Vancouver. Um, Part of the difficulty is there's all these issues that have, that are happening simultaneously and uh, they blend together but are simultaneously distinct and i think that's part of the reason why there's a lot of confusion as to is this an economic issue is it a national security issue is it an ip issue is it a trade issue <laughs> um, and it's because in it parts all of these things but uh, if you don't break them out of those discrete parts it's very uh, nebulous as to what you're actually talking about
0: well, I think you hit on a great point, I mean, which may help explain why this has become so poorly understood if we're talking about multiple issues that blend one from the next. Why don't we try to unpack them a little bit? Uh, let's start with the competition-related issues. Security is where I thought we would generally go, but why don't we try to just pick off at least several of the other ones, starting with some of the concerns from a competition-related perspective. What are some of those, and should Canada be concerned? Are we competing in that space?
1: Yeah, so with to competition, the concern is that there there really aren't that many providers that can do top-to-bottom full-stack 5G deployment. Uh, Nokia has capabilities there. Ericsson has some capabilities there. Huawei has capabilities there. And then there's a bunch of other players that do discrete elements but but aren't going to be able to do the full stack. So the worry is that uh, if Huawei becomes dominant, it's going to starve um, Western companies, or you know Western allied companies, uh, and that could have the effect of ultimately moving into almost a monoculture where Huawei is the predominant international supplier of 5G. That could subsequently have implications for pricing, have implications for uh, conditions of of access or license. So you can get this, but you must buy this as well. So many of the the concerns that are associated with monopolies typically um, is is one of the the fears linked with this. And also because uh, the the R&D to go into building this telecommunications network is so significant that when the competitors or should, rather, should the competitors truly become starved of capital, their ability to invest is going to be challenged. And, and that correlates, w- in some respects, with IP-related issues. Because, um, as you know, I suspect much better than I do, <laughs> um, certain patents that are developed, uh, which Huawei is developing, I have about 10 or 15% of the core patents for 5G at the moment. As they obtain more and more patents... Uh, there's the concern that they could then build hedges to also prevent their competitors from, get, from coming in. And so this is another way where uh, they might be able to build a moat around uh, any research advantages that they develop. And certainly within the Canadian context, uh, on that latter point around patents, Huawei is, is a very active investor in Canadian academic institutions. Um, I should note that one of them is the University of Toronto, although the, the Citizen Lab has never and would not uh, take money from any corporate body, in, including Huawei. And so when that money is assigned uh, to research labs, professors and graduate students go and do their work. And in some universities, the patents that are then generated are automatically ceded back to Huawei. And so that's where there's sort of an academic tie to uh to patent development, and also tied to, you know, the potential for Huawei to grow bigger and bigger if they're able to uh, develop actual market monopoly status.
0: Okay. I just want to, you've, you've hit on a bunch of things there, and so I'm going to try to bring it down just one level just to ensure that that everyone's got it. We're fundamentally, by the sounds of it, talking about next-generation networks, especially around so-called 5G, the faster telecom networks that we often hear about and that carriers are are making significant investments there. And by the sounds of it, the concern is that you could have a single company, in this case a large Chinese company, uh, leveraging significant control, on, at least on a global, on a, potentially on a global basis, when it comes to 5G, both in terms of being able to control or controlling much of the technology compared to what some of their competitors are able to do as these things get implemented, and able to do that both by leveraging their size and economic power, as well as seeking to leverage intellectual property that they develop over time by, in a sense, creating a patent thicket or patents around many of the kinds of technologies that will go into 5G. Uh, do I largely have it right?
1: Yeah, you've, you've, you've uh, got it right there.
0: Okay, so so while we've seen these investments from companies, as you mentioned, like TELUS and Bell, to date, I suppose that one of the reasons we are hearing more and more about it is that com- countries and companies have really turned their attention to 5G and suddenly they see a giant competitor that, ha- that has the potential capability of really controlling what most see as the next generation market for telecommunications.
1: Every day we get more reasons to ban Huawei from our 5G network. The big concern is its powerful 5G capabilities. The next generation technology is expected to deliver internet speeds that are tens of times faster than what we have now. And it will support networks that run major infrastructure like self-driving cars, connected homes, even factories and power grids. When we're talking about 5G, we're we're talking about massive investments. Um, You know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And where there's some contention at the moment, um, and it's not entirely clear who's right, um, is you have certain uh, certain business leaders that are coming out and asserting that uh, the, the Huawei 5G equipment um, goes on top, typically, of other Huawei 4G equipment, because it's an upgrade system as opposed to a totally new, like, rip-out infrastructure, and that it is not possible to uh, add in, say, Ericsson or Nokia equipment on top of uh Huawei 4g equipment and more uh, further to the point should we say in five years or six years oh well this was a big mistake to put Huawei in we need to replace it uh again there's this the stated concern that there's actually an inability to uh make a switch out of that type now there is some uh doubt associated with that so at least uh the uh some of the the senior executives in both Nokia and Huawei, as well as some independent telecommunications experts um, who who I've done reading about, uh, they've asserted that it is possible to actually layer Ericsson or or Nokia on top of Huawei, or vice versa to put Huawei on top of uh, an Ericsson or or Nokia uh, batch of kit. So there is some question about how much it would cost to replace, and indeed, whether whether we're in a path-dependent situation with companies like Telus, uh, in particular, or whether we can do a course correction without like massively just ripping out infrastructure that's there and rebuilding.
0: Right. So it, it sounds like there's a potential strategy there of both locking in and locking out, locking out through the, on the patent side by stopping some from entering into the marketplace, locking in basically by using your techno- your existing technology to try to lock people into future upgrades.
1: That's certainly the concern. Um, and, and it remains to be seen um, how effective that particular uh, lock-in is. and uh, it, it's definitely an evolving uh, element of this space right now. it's It's almost changing week to week
0: right. now the if this was purely a, an economic issue, one can understand why there would be concerns, although of course, there would be counter arguments that this Cheaper pricing and more efficient implementation of some of these systems makes it perhaps more likely that we'll see the necessary investments, perhaps more competitors come into the marketplace if it's cheaper to institute 5G. But those are the, the uh, kinds of battles that we see from time to time, of course, when it comes to antitrust-related issues. But what makes this particular case, I think, particularly interesting and perhaps particularly challenging is that as you suggested earlier on there is a security gloss that that comes with this is very often the issue isn't framed so much as a threat from an economic perspective but rather first and foremost a security one. The first 5G pilots are launching in the UK promising everything from smart cities to hologram calls yet the rush to build the super
1: fast wireless network comes with a risk because the best technology comes from Chinese manufacturers, such as Huawei and ZTE, raising the fear that China's government will gain ground-level access to,
0: even control of, the UK's critical data infrastructure. You sit there at the Citizen Lab, leading the world in in unpacking and discovering security-related issues in the network. Let's talk a bit about what the security concerns are and whether or not they're legitimate.
1: Yeah, so I think that uh, one of the things that's helpful to frame it to begin with is uh, there are sort of technical security concerns and there's national security concerns. And the latter is politicized and the former is sort of a standard bread-and-butter technical uh, assessment. So with the to national security, um, all the pieces that we just talked about fit into a national security concern. So, you know, economic, uh, or sorry, monopolization of a, of a core technology that's going to, in theory, you know, advantage uh, Western economies, you know, that's a national security issue by default because it's the core networking technology that's, that's core to the infrastructure of the way that the world might turn out to be. But in addition, there are concerns that uh, under Chinese legislation that was passed a few years ago, that Huawei could be compelled to modify the operation of its systems. And it really doesn't have a choice, as uh, legal experts who who have assessed that element of Chinese legislation um, have asserted. If the Chinese government asserts that you know we're going to be you know compelling a backdoor, or um, more likely, simply don't patch this thing, um, and so it's it's not a deliberate insertion. It's just uh, you you leave some particular bit of leaky code in place in perpetuity and just encourage the company to not patch it. So those are the the core types of concerns, like technically what might be done. Um, And So this is, again, where the national security concerns blend into technical security, because uh, at a national level, we'd be concerned about Chinese intelligence or military or other uh, uh, elements of the government or bodies associated with the government. Uh, taking advantage of 5G networks or 4G networks or any other Huawei system for that matter uh, to the advantage of the Chinese government to the disadvantage of presumably Canada or their competitors. And then at the technical level, yeah, we have this, what is the actual robustness and the security that is afforded by these uh, pieces of equipment? And on that front, um, the UK, which has been doing assessments of Huawei for for many, many years, uh, an element of uh, the GCHQ does this um, in a center that's built up between GCHQ, the, the British equivalent of the NSA, and Huawei, and the technical assessments that they've done on Huawei equipment this, uh, being sold into the UK has been absolutely terrible, with um, very senior members of GCHQ fairly recently, in the past month or so, coming out and saying that the security culture and security practices that is, um, evident when they do these tests of Huawei equipment is something like security circa, you know, 2000 um, and just is absolutely not meeting the grade of the expectations that you would have for any company today selling mass infrastructure to the world.
0: And and are those conclusions, is there, is there a sense that those conclusions in terms of the weakness of security, is that Driven Is there a thought that that's being driven by government pressure to create kind of the sort of leaky or weak security? Or it's just a company that's trying to dominate or rush out as much gear as it can, as quickly as it can, and security may not have been a priority along the way?
1: Uh, The assessment by the GCHQ is that there is no evidence that they have detected that there is compulsion um, on the part of the Chinese government to code badly, um, and that it's just uh, an absolute lack of security processes that uh, are embedded. Um, and, and, you know, to, to, be, to be fair to, to Huawei and Huawei engineers, um, you know, if you go back to around the 2000s, and you think of Microsoft at the time, and their security culture was equally just abysmal, and that it took a, a massive transformation of Microsoft and, and other major software vendors to really start prioritizing security. The concern, however, is in the case of Huawei, uh, GCHQ, which, which went um, and, and traveled to uh, Huawei's headquarters in China and did spot tests of certain practices and processes, uh, the, the report that came out this year from, uh, from the evaluation of Huawei said that, A, there hadn't been a change year over year. And two, there were serious doubts that a change could happen, um, and so they were basically asserting that the the culture of security within Huawei was um, so inadequate that they were uncertain that they could bootstrap their way up to an adequate an adequate uh, security position.
0: Hmm. Now, now before I, we get to how company countries rather have responded to this, you know, a mar- I guess a market based approach to this would say. If I'm a telecom provider concerned about potential liability that could arise from some of these kinds of issues, my, I, I wouldn't want to be buying security equipment or telecommunications equipment that is 2,000 circa security. Uh, but yet it seems like many of the telecom providers, including some of Canada's largest, are buying. Uh, is it that price trumps all in this environment?
1: I suspect there's a few pieces that go on um, with regards to it. One, I'm certain that the the decreased capital expenditure is attractive to to anyone, especially any publicly traded company. Um, Two, security is always something that no one wants to talk about, (laughs) because security only costs you things, and ultimately... Um, you can never know if having a more secure product actually saved you money or not, because if it worked, you don't know, and if it didn't work, you also may not know, if unless your uh, your detection systems are up to snuff. And third, um, most telecommunications networks, um, while well, you know they, they have uh, abstract conceptual commonalities, they are boutique, and that they there's a lot of individual individual uh, development for all of them, and so it is possible in some cases, that you know, telecoms can see some of these deficiencies and they can try and shore up their own defenses internal um, or make modifications to how the equipment works. But one of the issues that was pointed out, in, and again, in this most recent GCHQ report, was that Huawei didn't have an ability to reliably issue uh, patches to all systems with, with a common vulnerability. And so that means that, let's say... Uh, Security folk in TELUS are doing audits of their equipment and they find a vulnerability or a a problem um, in one of the boxes that they have. They can go to Huawei in theory over time. They'll get a patch. But there isn't a guarantee that the patch that then is issued to those TELUS boxes are then also going to go to Bell or uh, AT&T or Vodafone or anyone else, even in the same country when, you know, obviously when you're talking – about Europe or, or Italy there when you have multiple major competitors because that phone's clearly not here. So there's, this is what I mean by, like, there's a, a deficiency in culture. And I suspect other elements is um, this probably isn't getting up to executive years. Um, you know, this is a boutique security issue. And until probably the past year and a half or so in Canada, I would be sort of surprised if this was top of mind for, for executives when they're um, – trying to evaluate how to move their companies forward.
0: Ah, So if we can't count on the companies to act for some of the reasons you've just articulated, then I suppose it falls to governments to set regulations. And it would appear that some governments have done so by seeking to ban the company from being part of their networks.
1: That's definitely one approach that's been taken. Um, One of the difficulties is that many of the times when these bans have been asserted, they're asserted on national security grounds with uh, spooky waving behind a, behind a curtain. And you're, you ask, well, what exactly, is the, what exactly is the concern that you're pointing to? And um, it, it's, it's never revealed in open settings. And indeed, it's not, a, it's not immediately apparent ha- that there has been an instance to date that showcases that Huawei is behaving or has behaved in the past as a national security threat. Um, the concern, in fact, um, as has been pointed out by the U.S., uh, uh, I guess this the House Intelligence uh, uh, body, has come out and stated that the the issue is that uh, a good uh, position they take rather is that a good piece of Huawei equipment is only good until its first malevolent firmware update, and so once ex- sorry, can
0: you just explain what that what that means?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, f- a firmware update is just the the some of the base code that that operates these routers. So, um, much like you know the computer that, that you have at home or your smartphone or something like that, there's all sorts of different components that can receive updates, and and firmware is um, sort of very close to the the silicon or the the metal of the machine. Um, so it's different from your uh, from the operating system itself, and so. All it would take would be one deliberate bad firmware patch that, uh, you know, would enable uh, a foreign actor to do any number of things, right? And this is where the the whatever your wherever your imagination goes, whatever sci-fi you've seen, it's not necessarily the worst place to go to uh, run your imagination. So can it be anything from slight modification to um, uh, the way that data traffic is moving, it could mean certain packets are dropped, it could uh, collect certain packets and shuttle them to a, a given location, um, were there a situation where um, the routing equipment was dependent on uh, a random number generator, or a pseudo-random number generator to develop encrypted streams then there would be the concern that maybe the number generator was tampered with so that a third party who was capturing data could subsequently decrypt the traffic. Uh, It could cause uh, issues with the way that uh, any of the virtual systems that are put up on top of some of these routers operate, such that rather than having actual perfect um, isolation between them, that you might be able to bleed data from one to the other, uh, which would be useful for exfiltrating data and then um, moving it elsewhere or potentially modifying data in one of the, uh, the virtual systems. So really, the concern is that um, Huawei routers could be transformed similar in manner to the way that the NSA has targeted and transformed, quite frankly, or taken advantage of exploits in um, Cisco routers and all the other major providers as part of their national uh, security activities through the NSA and in partnership with Canada and the CSE.
0: Yeah, so there, there is a bit of irony here that in terms of trying to imagine what some of the threats are, often take a look at what we're doing or what uh, the United States is doing and say, hey, they could do that too. Uh, I, I do want to just make sure that we touch on where Canada stands on this. So we have seen some of the some countries respond to the, the kinds of threats you've just identified. Canada, for the moment, hasn't taken a strong position. Can you just elaborate a little bit on on where we are and where you anticipate things might head? The advent of this of this new technology, five G, uh, is uh, a, about to revolutionize uh, the uh, uh, the information technology that we deal with in our in our daily lives. That revolution has been ongoing. What with with five G compared to four G. Uh, the pace and the magnitude of change uh, are going to be enormous. We want to ensure that uh, Canadians enjoy the full benefits of this uh, incredibly powerful technology, but at the same time, we want to ensure that Canadians and our systems are sound and safe and secure, to some extent, uh, there have been some commentators
1: that have criticized Canada for not taking a position. Um, I, I suspect that us not taking a position is probably the best thing that we could be doing at the moment, because we're, we're actually seeing natural experiments play out. So we currently haven't decided whether we're going to ban, whether we're going to permit, or we're, whether we're going to partially ban. And so a full ban is something like what uh, Australia has done, where you know Huawei is not permitted to engage in the 5G network. A partial ban is where you have uh, Huawei systems which are not permitted in the core of the networks of the telco companies, but they can provide um, edge-based services. And so that'd be radios and, and things of that nature. And there's another approach, which is they're allowed in but they get audited, and that's what uh, the British are doing right now is, is deep audits to evaluate and then sort of like a catch-and-release. They, they look at the equipment, assess the equipment, and then release it into the market for use. The difficulty is that um, the catch-and-release doesn't seem to—I mean, again, the, the UK government's assessments are relatively bleak. They are not confident that they are going to be able to um, mitigate the harms to national security that are associated with uh, Huawei's equipment. Full-on bans uh, are potentially very expensive, and in the Canadian context, with uh, the Canadian government's historical efforts over the past decade or so to expand trade with China, um, banning Huawei, which is one of their champion companies, would be probably very deeply problematic for those trade negotiations to say nothing of the fact that China has uh, demonstrated a willingness to engage in hostage-taking and, and other activities, um, principally in response uh, to the seizure of Huawei's CFO. But China's generally demonstrated, both in their region and internationally, uh, a willingness to flex their muscles. And so if we ban or block um Canada will probably continue to see the sorts of economic difficulties that we've had for the past several months, you know, blocking of pork, inability to send our agriculture products and uh, such into China. So what is Canada going to do? Prior to their CFO being seized, this was an issue that was more squarely to my assessment in the security domain um, in less in the trade domain, less than domain of politics, um, but now it's a front and center political issue and it's a front and center trade issue. So, what we do is, is I have no idea. Um, I would be surprised if whatever decision is reached is reached on the basis of uh, security, although it may be presented as such. Um, this has become a massive political football or hand grenade, and uh, I think we're watching the Liberal government. Try and figure out what exactly to do with it, which is in part why they've they continue to defer when they're going to have a decision. Um, and they keep pushing it further and further out. So, I believe that a decision now is due right around the election, either shortly before or shortly after. Um, but it's a it's a challenging issue, and it's not apparent how the government's going to move.
0: Yeah. Well, based on on the way you've described it, we haven't even got into the issues around phone bans and, and obviously the kidnapping issues and broader trade issues. It's one that is so complicated with a country that has been viewed for some time as, as critically important as part of a diversification of Canada's economy and and trade trade strategy, and at the same time dealing with all these challenges on top of, of the desire to ensure that we get next-generation 5G networks and see the kinds of investments that uh, the government is hoping to see from a number of players to help create and foster a more competitive environment?
1: Yeah, it's uh, again, I think that the fact that Canada is waiting, on the one hand, if we'd made a decision, we wouldn't be in quite the same political mess we're in now. But because we have, we can actually evaluate what systems work. So the one to, to watch for is how effective the uh, the partial ban is in the the network level. So if it actually turns out that um, you know the various spy agencies, which you know hack these things, if they think that that might be a way of keeping things secure, then maybe that's a, a way of um, threading this particular needle. But uh, there are some pretty severe concerns that because we haven't seen this equipment and it hasn't been deployed yet, um, in any meaningful numbers that we may end up finding vulnerabilities or difficulties in the way that any company puts it in. Um, and then the concern becomes, do we want to work with a Western country and company who, you know, we think is probably quote unquote on our team and sort of the world of international politics, or do we want to instead um, rely on Huawei continuing to uh, behave as, you know, a good corporate citizen, but one that may, well, the one that operates out of a country that, frankly, doesn't respect the rule of law and um, could very significantly um, engage with Canada on both economic, military, and intelligence matters, you know, at any time in the future?
0: Yeah, okay. Indeed. Well, you know, I started off by by commenting on how poorly understood and how challenging the issue is. And I think, uh, if anything, over the last uh, half hour of this discussion, you've highlighted that it, it is perhaps even more complex than people appreciate. But the the notion that Canada might even benefit from uh, late-mover advantages by being able to see how this plays out elsewhere is, is interesting because we've seen that in some other policy areas as well. Chris, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo Lebron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose Lebron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.